0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Chaz Smith, arguably the bad boy of surf journalism. Chaz was born in San Jose, California, but grew up in Bay, Oregon. In an interview, he once quipped that he had, quote, grown up in a depressed, cloudy logging town on the coast but the logging industry had moved at fled and it was only depressed. He learned to surf at the beat at these beaches in those frigid waters and not particularly noteworthy waves longing for California the whole time. After getting an undergraduate degree in intercultural studies and a master's in linguistics, he studied in Egypt and at Oxford. He started his career as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent, writing for publications, including vice paper and black book, about Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Somalia, Azerbaijan, and Colombia. And he was briefly a correspondent for Al Gore's Current TV. When Hezbollah kidnapped him during Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 2006, he decided to transition to surf journalism. He wrote for the mainstream surfing magazine and the Brash Stab before co-founding the notorious website Beach Grit in 2014. He's also published with the more highbrow The Surfer's Journal, as well as in mainstream publications such as Esquire and Playboy. His first book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, came out in 2013. It was a finalist for the Penn Center USA Award for nonfiction. This was an extremely brave expose of the North Shore of Oahu, the most important seven miles of surfing beaches in the world. In the book, he details the drugs, corruption, and brutal violence of one of the most stunningly beautiful places on earth. He also took tremendous risks to his career and his personal safety by naming names in a community that is as close to meddlesome outsiders as a Sicilian mafia town, complete with a Polynesian version of Omerta, the code of silence. I'm actually from Oahu and a second generation surfer, and I've spent a fair amount of time on the North Shore. And I'll just say that I cannot confirm or deny what's in that book. But I can say that I got more than a few raised eyebrows when I mentioned to my surfing friends that I'd be interviewing the Chaz Smith. More recently, as in just a few weeks ago, he released Reports from Hell, an account of his time in Yemen and elsewhere in the Middle East that engages both the origins of Al-Qaeda and the quality of surf on the southern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Today we'll be talking about his 2018 book, Cocaine Plus Surfing, A Sorted History of the Greatest, of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. This book is difficult to classify. It definitely has some history in it, but it is not a scholarly archival project. Indeed, it reads more like a Hunter S. Thompson investigation of the ways in which cocaine and surfing have been intertwined over some four or five decades or perhaps many thousands thousands of years longer if you buy his premise about ancient Peruvian fishermen happily chewing coca as they surfed their boats to shore coming in from the Pacific Ocean. The main focus of his book is on the prevalence of coke in the surf industry. Now, this is gonzo journalism and Chaz Smith puts himself into the narrative and he does it in a way that I think would have made Hunter S. Thompson proud. The pages scream truth to power, and the chapters drip with self-deprecating humor that can transcend into self-loathing. He condemns the surf industry, he mocks so much of the surfing life, and he tells us again and again that he hates being a surfing journalist. At one point, he ponders why he's still writing about surfing when he writes, I suppose I I was supposed to have waved goodbye to the shallow end of the swimming pool years ago. I was supposed to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning war reporter by now spilling valuable words on the plight of Syrian refugees while dodging bullets. Or maybe in the White House briefing room being shouted down by the press secretary for speaking truth to power. Or front row at the Fendi show in Paris across from Anna Tour. Anywhere but here, but there he is, bopping about Southern California's heart of the surf in, surfing industry, driving from surf industry event to surf industry event, surrounded by an increasingly desperate surf in, increasingly desperate surf industry figures, grinding their jaws, and trying to get into the bathroom to snort a few lines. All the while, he sardonically observes the surfing industry's free fall as he gulps down yet another vodka cocktail. Doing his best to find meaning in perhaps the shallowest, shallowest subculture we could imagine, he is a detached and disgusted observer of the surf industry's apocalypse. delivers his dispatches in insightful and oftentimes hilarious prose. Even if you don't know which side of the surfboard to wax up, you'll find it hard not to be drawn into Chaz Smith's history of surfing. Chaz Smith, welcome to New Books in History.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I literally could not be more pleased than to be right here right now.
1: Right on. So now we normally start the show by asking the guests, to tell us a little bit about themselves and uh, how they became to be the authors they are. I said a few words about your bio in the introduction, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. How how did you become a surf journalist?
0: I mean, it was just such a pure accident along with, I think, becoming a writer in any way, shape or form. It all just sort of came out from wanting to travel more uh, and then figuring out, oh, in order to pay for travel or facilitate travel, you know, got to write or I mean, that was always my thing. We got to write a, we can sell these stories. B uh, it gives us a reason to go. Uh, it was me, especially those. That,
1: that's how I became a historian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's just an excuse to go. Yeah. Uh, but then I think as I started writing a bit more, just falling in love with, I think I fell in love more with the idea of writing and specifically with writers, uh, I, I think I'm was especially an awful writer. I think you know whatever. Oh my goodness! I, I just had to yeah. My first book was uh, "Walk in Paradise, Now Go to Hell," which I just had to read the audio version of it. And reading work that's seven years old uh, and not being able to edit in real time was absolute torture. Agonizing so yeah. I don't I don't know that I'm a even halfway decent author now. But but it was the idea of writers. It was like the I don't know the air of like of Camus and of Hemingway and of you know Fitzgerald and of these guys. I just thought, well, being a writer is the best thing ever. I want to be that. Well, so
1: okay, Camus, Hemingway. Like, who were your writing influences, literary influences, journalistic influences?
0: The so the first writer I think that I ever truly fell in love with was Camus. I mean, and I don't again. I loved what he wrote, but I also and how he wrote, but I also loved who he was uh, and how he you know, the figure he cut, like the flipped collar and the cigarette and the tuberculosis and all of it. Um, and then, but as I started writing myself, it was, it was just new journalism that just grabbed me by the throat and still hasn't let go. I mean, it's basically, you know, the the only stuff I really read still like from you know, Joan Didion to, uh, uh, Hunter Thompson, of course, Tom Wolfe, um, norman mailer just any of the kind of yeah late 60s through late 70s i suppose when journalism became story uh that's what i loved and still yeah. yeah and and
1: with that uh that trend you put yourself into the story in the sort of the gonzo journalism aspect
0: which i just don't it's funny because i think at early early days it was probably uh, some narcissism but I think (laughs) now it is like and it always read really narcissistic but it's I just don't know like I don't feel comfortable enough speaking for other people Uh, but I you know sticking myself dead center at least there's a reference point that the author that I feel comfortable you know being that asshole and then letting the reader decide okay this is the world's like I know this person and this is the world as he's observing it.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, what did you want to accomplish with this book? Um, uh, were you really trying to write a history of cocaine and surfing? I mean, to be honest with you, when I got done with the book, I realized it was not the book that I thought I was starting to read when I first read it. Because um, the book's about so much more. Um, and as we move through this, you know, this crazy throw ride around Southern California, um, the book's a lot about you. And a lot about your relationship to the surf industry, and it's it's also got this um, <laughs> sort of tug and cheek riff on the uh, the hero's journey mythos and uh, and so forth. So what I mean, what, what is, did you really start off trying to write like a a real history of cocaine and surfing or? did you start off trying to write something else or did it become something else as you went on? Like what, no, what is is this book? What is this crazy book?
0: It's a giant mess. Uh, after, after my first book came out, I thought, okay, I'm done. Which was a surf book about life on the North shore. Um, I thought, okay, I've written a surf book. Now I'm on to bigger and better. And so I pitched a few things to my agent and just nothing really stuck. Uh, And he was like, you know, every idea I had, I thought they were all genius, but you know, they were all outside of surf. They were all, you know, whatever. I was going to climb out Everest to show that it wasn't that hard to climb out Everest was one of the pitches and a bunch of just random stuff that I thought was pure genius at the time Uh, and nothing stuck. And so finally I kicked, I don't know what made me think about it. I just wrote cocaine and surfing and sent it to my, it's a history of coke and surfing sent it to the agent, the agent sold it. And then once it got sold, I was like, Oh no. I actually have to write this thing now. I just thought of it as a mostly just a sentence. I mean, the sentence in my mind was cocaine plus surfing, a love story. Uh, And so then I thought, okay, that's okay. Like really getting down to the history, uh, you know, and and how both drugs in general, but cocaine specifically influenced so much of the early surf industry, you know, not only from where surfers went, but how they got there to the funding of the early surf brands did, and so I thought it was going to be the story, you know, that I would tease out the cocaine part and, and just tell that history. And lo and behold, as I begun, began writing it, cocaine is the most boring drug ever. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't like the idea of psychedelics, maybe like I'd never feel like a hippie and don't, you know, whatever. But I, I suppose people do interesting things when they're Taking psychedelics and or they do interesting things even when they're taking meth, right? I mean like I've had friends who Got totally whacked out on meth and you know tried to put plate glass Windows through uh, buzz saws because they were trying to make a work of art, but you're doing something I think cocaine Inevitably ends up just sitting in a bathroom chatting um, Solving real, the world's problems and uh, Precisely and so realizing business ideas Totally. And this, this kind of boring cycle of cocaine, that cocaine has this really boring cycle. Uh, then I realized, you know, dang it, this is, you know, I just, there's not enough there. I mean, every cocaine story more or less is the same. And there's the good smuggling, cocaine smuggling stories in surfing. Uh, and, you know, I still hear more and more that I think, oh, dang it, I should have, you know, written that story in there, right? There's always a good cocaine smuggling story. Um, but there's no really good cocaine. It's not, it's just not that interesting. Cocaine is a lot sexier on the surface, which I suppose is the whole point with it, right? It's this glamorous, sexy looking drug that really is just a more or less empty soul rotting drug. Mm-hmm. And And so, yeah, so as I was writing, realizing there's just not enough material here or that's not what I thought was interesting is not that interesting anymore. And so then... Uh, I don't know, but the, the surf industry is still endlessly fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, (laughs) you seem to be fascinated by the surf industry. You seem to hate the surf industry. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast who are academics um, may not even have heard the term surf industry before. Um, What is the surf industry? Is it really, is it really about surfing um, or is it about the fashion industry? Because one of the things I noticed in the book is there's, there's no discussion of board shaping or selling any of the hardware. It's about the clothes. So what, 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 when you say surf industry, what do you mean? And what, and what, what is it?
0: So I, I suppose it's changed over the, over the, you know, decade plus I've been writing at surf. It used to only be the fashion, right? Like it was Quicksilver and Billabong and Volcom. That got there, you know. I, I think Volcom sold for seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Both Billabong and Quicksilver had near two billion dollar valuations at some point uh, in their in their run, and you know, money was just churning through surf fashion uh, for a long time or a longish time, I suppose. And coming in from the outside and thinking, "Wow, like yeah," the you know, the actual board shaping and all that—that's all fine and good. Uh, but it's this this spike where everything was, you know, people were getting by. And then all of a sudden, people are getting rich from, from selling the idea of surfing. Uh, so that, I think, really captivated me is, is what is this now? So I think it was one thing 10 years ago. It was another thing when I was riding cocaine and surfing. It was like really in its sort of downward slide. Now it's absolutely dead, right? I mean, there's the brands are finished. For all intents and purposes and the only things making money are the hard goods are surfboards which i realized is the absolute true apocalypse when people are buying uh surfboards the world is over officially what do you mean now the line, like when people were buying surf clothes pretending to be surfers fantastic they're all on land pretending to be surfers now in covid everybody's buying boards and actually paddling out because it's something they can do socially distance. It's a healthy lifestyle. So the lineups are chock full now. I mean, do you notice your lineups fuller? Oh, and- oh
1: no, no. The, this is, this year is the most crowded we've ever seen in Santa Cruz. I was on Oahu in February and it was shoulder to shoulder, uh, surfers from backdoor to Rocky point, um, probably all the way to Camuland. I mean, it was packed. Which is so, crazy, and I'm I'm so happy so for the board so shapers. How, how is that? The, how is that the surfing apocalypse? If if more people are surfing than ever before,
0: because surfing is the only thing. I mean, the the best, the only part about surfing is trying to be more alone, right? I mean, I don't. I suppose I grew up uh, surfing in the Oregon coast, and so never could never figure out a crowd. Could never figure out how to move through a crowd. Like when you're sitting and watching Pipeline, or even you know Steamer. Uh or the lane. I'm sorry, I will call it the right thing. Uh you you watch <laughs>
1: Chad <Chance> Smith canceled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You lost your
0: West Side card. <laughs> I deserve to get canceled for that one. Uh, but watching those people w- watching how they navigate a crowd. There's people who are really good at that, right? I mean, the pipe specialists, the, the people who surf pipe best are great at that. The people who surf you know trestles are great at that. I was never good at navigating a crowd. And so As the lineup, even out, you know, I'm surf North County, San Diego, as these lineups get more crowded, I just sit there thinking, okay, no waves for for me, right? Where before, when everybody's just wearing surf clothes, fantastic. Everybody's just on land pretending, not in the water pretending, which in the water pretending, aside from the board shapers, who I hope are all getting rich, is a disaster.
1: Well, I know a lot of board shapers and I don't know any of them are getting rich right now, especially with this phase of globalization and the advent of the pop out. Which is um for non surfing listeners boards manufactured in in China and Taiwan I mean, and then Costco, the, um, can, the Costco, Costco can't board. keep
0: wavestorm in stock
1: yeah the uh for again for the uninitiated you can go into Costco and buy uh, a serviceable beginner's board uh, for ninety five dollars and they're all made in China and they're just they they are. This <laughs> Donald Trump talks about the Chinese virus. This is the real Chinese virus. The wave storm is the plague truly. of these boards. Um yeah. and then the the darkest secret is they're they're actually super fun for people who can surf. They're they're the, the most fun boards to goof around on.
0: I mean, they're the funnest boards for people who can surf and, and it's a bad day. Like yeah. nobody, I feel nobody has done better, a better foamy than the wave storm. Yeah, yeah. But so
1: so I don't know. Let me circle back around to that question. What what is the surf industry
0: then? The, to me, the I mean, the surf industry is in my childhood fantasy. Uh, growing up again in Oregon, reading the surf magazines, you know, trying to watch Hot Summer Nights. Do you remember Hot Summer Nights on ESPN? No, I was not an ESPN guy. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would like, I wasn't either as a kid, but it would come on, I think it was ESPN or whatever, but they would have like 30 minutes of surf once a week in the summer. And it was, or surf, surf lifestyle. I think sometimes it was boogie boarding. Sometimes it was whatever, but I would just spoon it all down. Right. Like to me, uh, the idea of surfing was Camelot. And so this industry around it to me, you know, I I suppose it'd be the same as wanting to be an actor. And then realizing, oh, there's an actual film industry. You know, there's studios, and there's it's not just the actors, right? It's not just the surfers. There's people who exist who make their living who perpetuate this idea. And so, as a kid, the surf industry was the or the idea of a surf industry was an absolute fantasy that there is this this dream, this dream of surfing, has. I don't know. Has grown an entire world. It's like a Disneyland, right? Because surfing was always more than just surfing to me. Surfing was more than just, uh, you know, paddling into a wave and standing up. It, it was my identity. It's how I. It's how I, you know, felt when I woke up in the morning. I felt like a surfer. I wanted to be a surfer. I loved being a surfer. And the surf industry, again, as a as a naive youth was the thing that made that all possible. So I was just as interested in that as I was in surf stuff or surfing.
1: But but you see this, this industry, this business as reinforcing that identity in you. Sure. But um, I mean, the, the, the whole, for me, the whole concept of the term surf industry is so hilariously ironic because I'm I'm second generation surfer from Oahu. um, Yeah trying to get away from people, trying to, you know, that, that, that older ethos of the sort of rebel surfer, um, that like the professional surfing and contest surfing is for jocks and, and that whole nonsense. If I wanted to do that, I'd join a baseball team or a football team. Um, so the, the term, the term seems such an oxymoron to me and like such kind of embarrassing to say surf industry.
0: I mean, and I totally agree with you now, yeah. especially what they've what they've what they've done with it, right? To me, so again, not growing up anywhere there was good surf, like carving out my identity as a surfer in freezing cold Oregon waves, uh, sort of sucking off the energy of this industry, like thinking, okay, this is having having it help, you know, I don't know, paint the picture of who I was. uh, realizing sort of what it was and then watching watching the entire surf industry crash and burn in the most embarrassing worst possible way ever where i suppose good on the people who made money at the top right uh you're you know bob Bob mcknight's and these kind of genuinely core surfers uh who you know uh, who knows if they accidentally started these brands or what but started these brands and then oops they're now they're sold to uh you know, to, or going public, I suppose. And then after going public, falling into the hands of, you know, I don't know, whatever, like hedge funds and this we're now, I mean, that's all the surf industry is now the surf industry is one hedge fund and a couple of failing assets and the world. Surf league is such an embarrassment of a catastrophe. Like, and that, surfing? again, for the for the the
1: uninitiated, the <laughs> um, World Surfing League is the the current iteration of uh, a global professional surfing circuit, right?
0: Yeah, so it's like the D- NBA, ML, you know, Major League Baseball, NFL of surfing is called the WSL, the World Surf League, which now is run by you know Oprah's right hand at uh, Oprah Winfrey's right hand at. <laughs> The Oprah Winfrey Network, and it's just a—it's an—it's such a mockery, such an absolute mockery. Uh, the whole thing, top to bottom, is a mockery of the things that I grew up thinking. Well, this is awesome, and then realizing, no, you took something awesome and you made it like—I don't know—the th- concept of the term "selling out." I think even saying it as a you know mid forties man of like you know as a kid growing up. In the grunge era, you know, I just I felt that you know you never sell out, you never sell out. I not don't think I knew what that meant. Seeing what selling out looks like of taking something beautiful and and commoditizing it, I suppose, and monetizing it, and then selling it to the highest bidder, which that bidder continues to bid lower and lower and lower, and now you honestly, they're just a bunch of failing assets that nobody in their right mind will scoop up.
1: Yeah. And, and, and especially it's so especially ironic for surfing, which has this countercultural idea, you know, the, the soul rebel, the, the, you know, the, my dad was a hippie surfer from the, uh, from the sixties and, you know, took us to, uh, took me to Hawaii, um, as a, as a baby, um, just trying to find, you know, get away from it all, turn his back on the man and so forth. And it, it always makes me think of, um, there's a lyric from the, the clash song, um, White, smath, white man and Hammersmith playing, uh, they think it's funny turning rebellion into money.
0: Yep. I mean, that, and that's it. And that is like Matt Warshaw wrote, I think so poignantly in the introduction to Cocaine and Surfing about if we're going to sell this thing, let's sell it on our terms. Uh, you know, people are coming to us. We don't have to dumb this thing down. This is a dream. And I don't know, have some kind of funnel to get people to, you know, that you have to, it's so beautiful and it was so worth preserving and you know, it, not that it's dead. Cause I think something great has come out of it, but it's not the surf industry. It's now the individuals who are still somehow surfing and fighting the fight.
1: Yeah. Except for all those, uh, those idiots with the Costco boards and getting in my way.
0: <laughs> exactly. 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 But dang it. I mean, I keep thinking, you know, you're stinking from Oahu, you know, like, I just think now's the time for another Black Shorts to rise up, right? I mean, I feel everything's a sort of, I don't know, we're on a pendulum. And now's the time again for an Eddie Rothman to come and crack some heads. Yeah.
1: And uh, folks, read uh, his first book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, which is about the, uh, uh, the dark underbelly of the North Shore and uh, groups like the Black Shorts who are group of local surfers who defended their home breaks against uh, uh, primarily an Australian, but also Californian onslaught. And um, I've always said it's a fine line between community activism and vigilantism on the beach. It always um, is. <laughs> so well, let's, 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 get, let's get into the actual history that's in this book. Um, and you take us through a couple of key historical moments and phases in this uh, relationship between cocaine and surfing. So where did it start? I mean, you, you claim it started a couple thousand years ago in Peru
0: I mean that's like I, it's funny I think it's been this theory uh, Matt Warshaw again who is the surfing's one historian um, discredits the Peruvian uh, origin and he and I have gone back and forth quite a quite a bit about it but to me it all like what does it actually mean to ride a wave, right and Warshaw's claim is you have to be purposefully riding a wave, only to ride that wave. Like that's what your that is your sole goal for doing it, which is what the Polynesians were doing, right? Like uh, that's what the Hawaiians and Tahitians um, they were specifically going out to surf. The Peruvians would surf their uh, their fishing boats when they were coming back in. But and and these aren't
1: fishing boats. These aren't like
0: big trawlers. What what, what do they look like? Describe. Yeah, them they, I mean, it, it looks more or less like kind of a glorified stand-up paddleboard, right? With a it's a it's a bundle of reeds with kind of a flipped-up nose where they would. Well, if they're if they're surfers, they're not surfers. Yeah,
1: they, I mean, on, they, so that's the <laughs> that's
0: the problem. That's that's. No, no, I'm
1: I'm sorry, to interrupt, but but go on. So so. For how, how long ago is this? I mean, I mean this, is,
0: this is like prehistory. I think the first one of these, and they're called Little Horses Caballitos, I think in mm-hmm. Spanish is what they call their boats. Um, and this, like the first one they found, I, I can't remember exactly, but what was it, like 2000 BC or something, they found an, a depiction of one in a cave somewhere. And so this whole thing has been happening forever in Peru. And to me, adding intent after the fact, how can we do that? Yeah, I mean, you're a historian. Like, I don't know that we could say, okay, How do you, how do I know? How does Warshaw know? How does anybody know that that's not, you know, they would go out or fishing, but their whole goal coming back in was to surf. Uh, And it looks from all the er early depictions, it looks like they were having a hell of a fun time riding those waves back into shore.
1: But maybe they were having a fun time because they had a mouthful of coca leaves.
0: That's precisely the point. So speak and behold, uh, Speak to that. Lo and behold, cocaine also, or coca, also was first ever, not discovered, but that's the first place it grew, was Peru. Uh, There's ancient, 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 um, I don't know, both like references and reports about how they use coca in Peru, and it was very specifically Peruvian. And then, you know, as the history goes, of course, so you have these two things, right? You have this genesis of at least a form of surfing, and then a genesis of a form of cocaine. Clearly, coca is not cocaine. Um, But you have these two things in this one place, Peru, which I don't think people wouldn't typically put as, I don't think, dead center of surf uh, in their idea of what surf is, right? I mean, you think...
1: I've met Felipe Tomar, and he will tell you it is. Exactly. <laughs> so you did Felipe. And he, who claims to be the first man to ride a tidal wave.
0: <laughs> Precisely. It's epic. I love, I love his claims so much. Uh, yeah, totally. So, but Peru does have this surf culture, right? Where I don't think people outside of Peru or outside of Felipe probably think about it, but it does. And the fact that surfing has these sort of historical representations that are outside of what we imagine is is fascinating to me
1: okay so and and so your thesis is that there's this sort of primordial meeting and you talk about the um the way in the you know the thor Heyerdahl thesis and the 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 still not quite fully teased out by the academics link between um the the people of what's now south america and settling polynesia and totally there's this connection there
0: And and Thor, I mean, you as a historian, actually having to get a PhD and all this, like I think have to dispense with, I don't know, myth and romanticism at some point.
1: Well, see, I I was raised in a household where we called my dad Thor Heyerdahl. He was was like uh, an incarnation of of this guy.
0: Which in Thor, I know there's problems with Thor, but Thor Heyerdahl, the idea of Thor and of Contiki and all this as a kid to me was, I mean... And not even the idea, like what he did, you know, whether the whether the academic, you know, whether all the eyes are dotted and T's crossed, uh, making that journey is an absolutely incredible. I mean, building a little crap boat and sailing it across the Pacific is amazing. And finding a little dot in the middle of the Pacific, totally. And, and as you
1: say in the book, I mean, the so much of surf stories are bs like
0: like it really is essential to surf culture
1: to be telling these stories that yeah they're a little <laughs> they're a little shaky completely
0: right? i mean the suspect surf story is the that's is the that's only a surf one story that is that's the only yeah. one worth listening to i mean i suppose it shares you know that with fishing kind of like who wants to hear a real solid you know we have Eyewitnesses for this, this, and this, and this. And to me, the the Thor-Heierdahl story fits so well into a surf story, right? It's this epic tale that, yeah, maybe it's not all there, but, but it's mostly there. He actually did the adventure. Well, maybe surfing history shouldn't be archival-based
1: and we shouldn't uh, prof- subject to professional scrutiny. Never? Never. It should only
0: be – I mean, it should only be the story that is the – funnest to tell and the sort of the grandest that should be the one that lives as fact but you you
1: idolize uh, matt Warshaw, is this great uh, historian of uh, surfing and and he's
0: trying to undo that completely but he and i go back and forth all the time where yeah. i think no 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 like but I, you know what's my no 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 without his work like i feel you need to have the scholarship in order to have the play where so easy for me to provide the play part if there was no scholarship then what am I even playing off of? I'm just bouncing from untethered, you know, idea to untethered story.
1: Okay. Well, let's 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 bounce from untethered idea to another untethered idea. Perfect. Um, so there's this, you know, deep primordial connection uh, starting in Peru, and then um, both surfing and cocaine come to the United States at roughly the same time at the turn of the century, right? Exactly. From from outside southern influences, right? Exactly. So and- tell, tell us about that.
0: I mean, more or less unheard, or you know, unseen or untested in in America, and literally at the same time. So surfing came, George Freeth, more or less, uh, from Hawaii, uh, where so surfing, you know, in my thesis, Peru starts there, goes across to you know, Thor traces its roots from these Peruvians who went across the sea, and surfing ends up in Tahiti goes to Hawaii. So they're practicing surfing, you know, surfing is developing all this. Meanwhile, back in South America, coca, you know, is being used for more and more things and being discovered by Europeans. So both uh, forms of coca that have been processed and now, you know, something new. Now it's it's becoming cocaine. Exactly. It's on its way to becoming cocaine and surfing, which is, you know, in the stew was not what it looked like in Peru. But now both have been refined. Both have been cut and added new stuff, you know, chipped in. And both now are becoming more highly addictive. Uh, <laughs> and at the, at the same exact time. And look at that coincidence.
1: And, there, and it's arriving in the United States in Precisely. 1900, 1910. Exactly. Right around. You, who are some yeah. of the figures you talk about? You, you drop a little Mark Twain.
0: Yes. So Mark, Mark Twain, both cokehead and surfing enthusiasts oh, he he uh, he Did talked you about in the book i think he wrote about i think he was gonna buy a coca plantation oh, i that's think right his, that his whole dream yeah, was yeah, sorry yeah. yeah was so and there's all these of course how easy i don't know how you stop as a i mean i suppose the academia just kicks it out of you but for me anytime i can chase two <laughs> rabbit trails at once however like Silly and not true. One is I'll keep forcing my way through the weeds to try to find the connection. Mark Twain is the perfect one, right? Where mm-hmm. there's both references to Mark Twain surfing. He got taken surfing by oh, I can't remember who it was, and Jack London too. I mean, there was yeah. there was this there was this moment where these classic American authors
1: and Jack were, London's
0: better at it, uh, precisely. And and Jack London's description of it was phenomenal. I mean, he's getting sunburned and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so. But again, and then, yeah, Twain's other love or not love, but was talking about being a coca plantation owner. But these sort of this swinging early 1900s America were, I don't know if it was true, but things just looking back, it seems like things were new then or or new things were being discovered so rapidly that everything felt new. And these two things dovetailed together nicely even though you know at the time surfers i don't think had anything to do with cocaine but they were yeah. just coming into america at the same time yeah at the same time which i suppose funnels up to you know the 60s
1: um so when, when does this modern relationship between cocaine and surfing start i mean you, you talk a bit about um uh surfers exploring surf spots in indonesia in the 1970s particularly in java g land which I wish I had, if it were not for COVID, I would, I would have been there uh, a month or two ago. Um, and uh, you talk about some of the connections between these, uh, these larger than life surf explorers and the, how they funded their, um, their, sorry, endless summer. Right.
0: Exactly. So that's mostly it. Right. So you have these two developing things. I think you have cocaine, you have surfing uh, as cocaine is developing getting more purified getting more valuable because it had no not no value but it was fairly cheap for a long time i I mean i can't remember i should have reread my book (laughs) but uh it it only got outlawed in the states some you know not it it hasn't been like this class a scheduled drug for it's you know relatively recently was it was it outlawed before then it was just it was an ingredient it was just, you know, it was a yeah, med-
1: Famously, it was in Coca-Cola. And, exactly. Uh, I, in my academic work, I, I look at uh, some of the the French doctors that fought bubonic plague in Southeast Asia. And one of them, Alexander Yertsin, who was this great hero for conquering the plague in, in China. He also was the first to import coca to uh, Vietnam and had a coca plantation. And he had his own version of a cocaine beverage, which he was trying to push on everybody.
0: That is totally awesome. So, yeah. I mean, so, but it, like, yeah, I, Like this, this history and sort of what it became as it, as it became refined again, like surfing. So they, so now all of a sudden though, at some point, uh, I think in the fifties cocaine gets outlawed and, and now it's like actually potent. I mean, they've now it's cocaine. Now it is what we more or less consider cocaine surfing also had come to the point where it just grabbed people. Right. And so they're now throwing their lives away to go surf far away, exotic places What's easier at this point when you have people willing to, you know, sell all, not expecting to make any money. There's no surf industry at this point. There's no way to make money off surfing. So how do you make money off surfing? Very easily. You start moving drugs around. You're already moving places. You're already taking these big boards places. How easy is it to cut open your fin and layer some cocaine in there or glass some cocaine into your board so for the,
1: the uninitiated for the non-surfers in the audience. I mean, the surfboards are fiberglass construction and you can tear open. I mean, we we regularly bang our boards on rocks and on each other and have, have to fix the dings. And so everybody's always repairing their boards and re-glassing their boards with fiberglass and resin. And so they would they would rip a hole open in the board, create a secret compartment, put half a kilo in there or something. Yep
0: there you are and Mm -hmm. then
1: glass it over and then it's like oh yeah i just had to repair my board
0: it is the perfect i mean and and fiberglass also more is essentially cocaine i mean right like you have this white powderish thing when you start grinding it i mean just the the ease of being able to smuggle and so now you have the people who are already adventurous you have something that has value now that is very easy to transport it's not like gold or something heavy you know it's not guns or it's easy to get around there's you can play the markets right i mean jeff hackman one of the uh original founders of the brand quicksilver got the u.s license for quicksilver by realizing okay i can get cocaine cheap in america heroin's cheap in australia cocaine's expensive in australia i will take cocaine from america to australia and then bring heroin back uh along the way
1: in his surfboard
0: yeah in a surfboard and along the way i realized oh wait there's this amazing surf trunk that i really want to buy the license to and so and there we have quicksilver or at least quicksilver's coming to america and then you know the ride that quicksilver took and so from so, so quicksilver becomes
1: this gigantic multinational corporation and hackman's original purchase of the of the license the american license is with Cocaine profits. Were cocaine. smuggling I mean, profits.
0: It was. It wasn't necessarily with the profits, but it was. It, that's what he was doing. It was when he, seed you know, money. Yeah. Yeah, and he just got waylaid. And the, I mean, for so much of the surf industry, right? It was. I mean, there's rumors for all the brands about how they, or all the big ones, how they started, and it's, it's so tied up in this, this early drug trade, just because there was no industry. And so, how are these people going to make money? They're not. You can't surf and bang nails all day. You can't surf and teach all day. You have to be have a a job that makes you enough money to travel that also doesn't take much time where drug smuggling is the easiest thing ever. And I mean, there's a phenomenal movie that's never seen the light of day called uh, sea of darkness, which tells the story of G land and tells the story of these brands and these people. Um, Yeah. Where, I mean, it it was more or less as simple as that is you have commodities that are now expensive or, or valuable people who are adventurous and need you know, are already traveling the oceans, like one plus one equals love story real easily.
1: Yeah. I mean, there there are already these counterculture characters living on the edge. Um, this is mid seventies. So it's in sort of that uh, collective trauma that uh, American youth culture is going through after the American war in Vietnam, after the failure of the more uh, progressive aspects of the 1960s. And it's, into that phase of decadence and um and withdraw right so going for that,
0: sure yeah i mean with surfers just just being principally withdrawn i mean that's that's what we do best is withdraw i think that's what, all we ever want to do right is get away is give up like no surfer has ever been a a great champion of civil rights i don't think i mean maybe Duke kanamoku or there's probably some good hawaiian figures and now uh, there are
1: mart martin potter
0: I mean, Martin Potter made a stand. The the,
1: the Australians uh, took a really good stand against um, apartheid.
0: A a phenomenal stand, but one stand in, you know, a 20 year history. I mean, it's not a regular, not to say that surfers are bad people, but I think surfers are perpetually just wanting to disappear, just wanting to go be by themselves on a wave. Uh, This, and like, I think with civil rights, just the ugliness of how that collapsed. Uh, I think it was real easy and natural for surfers to think, hey, screw this. We're out of here. I mean, because they kept that going on G-Land way past its sell-by date.
1: What do you mean? They kept what, going the, the smuggling I mean, or the...
0: Yeah, like I think that when did uh, the G-Land camp finally got shut down by the Indonesian government for being a basically a drug harbor? I think it was like 76 or 77. It was yeah. like, you know, yeah. it wasn't like 69, Summer of Love, and then all, you know, yeah. it, I mean, it was almost to the 1980s. Uh, and then the surfers burst out from there. And, you know, many of them kept going. Many of them kept like just upped their smuggling operations.
1: Well, so take us to the 1980s. Um, and this is the explosion of both cocaine use in the United States and of the surf clothing business. That, that it's in the 1980s that we actually have the surf industry, right? Precisely. So you, prof- you profile the company Gotcha which I got to tell you was like so foundational in my life. I mean, I was, I was, um, you know, I was like, I was 13 in 1980. And I remember, um, I, I couldn't, my mom wouldn't always buy me gotcha shores. And so I would literally go into the stores and steal the stickers. Hangouts. And you, you mentioned that in the book, um, steal the hang tags, which were stickers. And it was such a, um, it raised my social capital so much to have the supply of gotcha stickers. But so tell us about um, gotcha as this company and it's party animal founder, Michael Thompson, who recently passed away.
0: Yeah. Michael Thompson just and passed you, away. you
1: Profile um, uh, I think in a, with a, a like a surprising level of depth and nuance. And I think really grace when you talk about him um, that I have not seen in other uh, aspects of him on uh, in surf journalism, but so what, what's the nexus of, Gotcha and cocaine, or surf industry and cocaine in the 1980s.
0: So, that I mean, that was it, right? 80s comes surf industry. So, you have these sort of nascent brands who are making trunks and t shirts and all that, and then 1980 hits and it just explodes. Like, what the why it did, who knows? But you know, the day glow kind of thing, whatever it was about the 1980s, it just surfing just went through the roof. And gotcha, you know, number one, I mean, they were like went from, I don't know. A few hundred thousand dollars in sales to you know millions of dollars overnight, millions of dollars. uh And found Gotcha was founded by a South African named Michael Thompson, who you know was sort of a a I don't know blue collary surfer was never that great. Would charge would you know go out and give her hell, but was never going to be a star. But just had this fashion idea. I mean, and Gotcha, you know, was was doing things that high fashion wasn't doing at the time. I mean, Michael had this idea of what he wanted all of this to be. And it was just absolutely decadent. It was, you know, cocaine smothered parties and strippers, you know, on the catwalk and whatever he thought, whatever his brainchild was, but it was this, it was just this unhinged vision of surf. And to me, that's what surf was, right? This is, this is easy to look back and say, Oh, that was the high watermark. But, I mean, that was the high water mark. Like it was where they were making money, but they were also, their vision was not, his vision was not compromised. And so, yeah, so this, but as things go, I suppose this industry just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then these companies start to go public and then it all breaks. But back to Thompson, I mean, what a character, what a singular legendary character. Yeah. And your, I, your I don't know why his life is amazing and part, part of my frustration with the surf industry today is that like sort of turning a blind eye or, or not turning a blind eye is being embarrassed about what he represented because Michael Thompson went on and got busted I think twice more for uh possession Um, you know and, and his story just became sort of this uh cautionary tale of don't get involved I mean Thompson never got off off it I don't think uh, when i interviewed her from the book i wrote about it off Off, cocaine specifically like it was not just drugs for him which is it was cocaine he loved cocaine uh you know the last time i interviewed him you could just hear just the wind blowing through his his septum like and he had but i don't know my in writing it and he was such a character and why do we have to make these guys cautionary tales like for sure i don't want to i don't want to do drugs like michael thompson did drugs but i suppose at some level i love that michael thompson did drugs like michael thompson did drugs like he he as the this i don't know this he was just such a stinking rock star for me and he still is and i don't know why we have to you know taint him because he did bad stuff
1: yeah and then you contrast that with this change in the surf industry but also cocaine uh, in the 1990s and in particular you you kind of point the finger at uh, Kelly Slater this uh, famous like global famous surf star who becomes this global figure and is still I mean I don't know possibly the most famous surfer on earth for Uh, sure
0: I think probably the only outside of Laird Hamilton the only surfer who even approaches household name
1: yeah yeah so what 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 does kelly slater represent for surfing and cocaine in the 1990s
0: so i think as so as surfing got and as the surf industry got bigger then you know they got ceos and whatever that were not necessarily part of the core and when surfers talk about the core of course you know uh it's just something that always meant something like i never wanted to be a outsider. You always, you know, you don't, you did not want to be a Barney or a cook. You wanted to be in this little nut inside, you know, just the core meant everything.
1: It's about credibility. Uh, it's about being a part of the community. It's, I mean, it's it surfers are extremely hostile to outsiders of all types. Exactly. geographic, cultural, um, rude, very bastards. tribal culture, but
0: uh, totally. But, but as the, so as the, you know, brands continue to grow though and make money, then outside people came in to run them and, kelly slater sort of dovetailed right not that kelly slater is outsider kelly slater is as core as core could be i suppose at some level but also was a product of this new explosion for what the surf industry was where he was handsome he was you know relatively or totally clean cut represented a athletic clean talented lifestyle was not a derelict in any way shape or form and so i think at this point with Kelly specifically uh, surfing or the surf industry took a hard turn away from being a bunch of Daryls and became this respectable, you know, I want Kelly Slater to be my son and, or marry my daughter. Um, Well, but I mean, when you're talking about the 1980s, I
1: mean, it's, it's, it's the, the night. So, I mean, surfing has its origins as this countercultural movement in the, well, with my dad in the late fifties and in the sixties, that changes a bit in the seventies, even in the eighties as you know, the surf industry explodes and all that. It's still the gotcha thing is still very counterculture. It's bad boy. It's naughty. Right. Sure. But then in the 1990s, that's when it really becomes establishment. And Kelly Slater is like the most establishment figure you could imagine. I mean, he eats healthy. I mean, he's uh, for whatever reason that, notion of being in the counterculture being anti-establishment is associated with heavy partying right yes and he does not do that
0: no no and never did and even you know when he was you know a young when he should have or when he theoretically you'd think he would have didn't I mean he was always you know set apart a bit and doing his thing and being healthy and I think pushing not probably purposefully but just the way he lived just this idea of surfing as a thing you want your kids to do and so now all of a sudden you have this explosion of you know again non-core people coming in of people looking at kelly and thinking "Ooh, yeah like let's teach our kids to surf and so they can be like kelly and let's let's do surfing as sport and surfing as healthy lifestyle oh i really don't like it but that's what it became in the 90s (laughs)
1: And Mickey Dora warned us about this. I mean, they, one of the great counterculture icons of the 1960s Malibu, um, you know, a, a very complicated individual who has got very interesting sort of last couple acts of his life. Uh, um, I don't think he ever got involved in drug smuggling, but he was smuggling diamonds at one point. I mean, uh, for sure. Like he was
0: up to all kinds of no good, um, I mean, checks and all of it. Mickey Dora Decat is
1: just so the antithesis of uh, Kelly Slater. And I think, you know the current sort of apotheosis of the kelly slater strain is the uh, inclusion of surfing in the olympics which um C- completely clearly god is against and that's why the olympics were canceled i mean that is is
0: <laughs> it's such a it is such a travesty and so that's i suppose coming full circle like there was one blip in kelly slater's you know run where andy irons surfer from Kauai, came up and challenged andy uh, or challenged Kelly, and,
1: and just just for again for the non-initiated. So yep. in the nineteen nineties, Kelly Slater wins the world championship. How many times? Six? I think it was
0: seven before seven times. I think it was and, seven before to, to the challenge.
1: Yeah, then he retires.
0: Yeah, like he he he's got
1: nobody to beat, and then the anti-Kelly, Andy Irons, who is got so much charisma, such an incredible surfer, is as you talk about, is a darn good-looking guy, right? I mean, he's yep. just, he's just like. Who, who like he's just this alpha male and he you talk about a bad boy um he, he was bad he's wrestling with some demons um yep. and his getting back to the cocaine his cocaine use was fairly open secret amongst the surfing community completely i'll say community and not industry right there yeah um
0: i mean and, industry too i mean we could say yeah. industry it was yeah. all industry like well,
1: i was i was, was going to include myself in that so. <laughs> but uh, um but um the uh so Kelly comes out of retirement to go up against Andy Irons, right?
0: Exactly. And loses and loses again and loses again. So Andy beats him three times, which is unheard of, you know, for the... Uh, I mean, Kelly had this aura of, you know, he he could never be beat. Then Kelly, of course, figures it out and goes and wins. I don't know. Now he has 11. So whatever 7 minus 11 is, won that many more titles while Andy goes and dies in Dallas, Texas of... Drug overdose.
1: Yeah, that I mean, and that's sort of the emotional peak of the book, and um, and it was a it was a gut wrenching moment for anybody involved in the larger surfing community, and I you know when it was in the industry, but um, um, here is this like incredibly talented surfer, uh, a complex individual. Um, but someone who's just undeniably captured like the spirit of surfing and of Aloha and in his various ways, Aloha can be understood. Um, not necessarily the Waikiki postcard, uh, definition. Um, how, how did he die?
0: He died. I mean, it was, it was, a kill. they claim heart attack, but as, <laughs> as I write, which, you know, hell, I think he was 33, right? When yeah. he died, which healthy 33 year old. in a
1: world-class athlete
0: yeah which which you know who has a heart attack or no it was years of and of course secondary cause was acute whatever toxicity from and he had cocaine in his system he had you know whatever he had in his system uh, but andy everybody knew andy was just a ripper uh, i mean he partied nonstop and and andy was sort of the last uh i mean i feel that surfing's rebellion or or this era of surfing rebellion died with andy and now, you know, brings us to today, I suppose, of this failing industry that's silly, but there's, it's just lo- it is completely lost its way. And I suppose it's so finished that uh, someone else could rise from the ashes now and make surfing rebellious again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so and, and I know you need to get going in a, in a few minutes, um, um, but I just want to ask you, so Ed, you, in the book, you go through a lot of introspection, if not flat out self-flagellation yeah. um, about your role as a surf journalist and what surfing journalism could be and should be. And at the end of this hero's journey, you seem to sort of have made peace with your profession and you, you claim um, that this profession you claim to despise so much and offer a new path forward. So what, what's you sort of end on this optimistic note and have this, this moment of epiphany of what surf journalism could be.
0: I think I'm still kind of there oddly, uh, in terms of I, I I always thought there was better out there and more out there. I thought surfing, I loved it. I loved it so much. But once I started writing, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, you know, go write the next great book, or I'm gonna go into, you know, write politics to write, you know, I don't know, to, to be a war journalist, to write anything that is meaningful. Uh and sort of realizing that none of it's, I mean, maybe it's all as meaningful as it is not, right? Like there's no, you're in something and it just feed, no matter what you're in, I think it feels meaningless to you. And the, funny, the whole hero's journey thing, I love the hero's journey. Do you <laughs> like the hero's journey?
1: No, no, it's, it's
0: totally trite. Um,
1: I, I mean, I, I liked it as Star Wars when I was 10. Precisely.
0: Um, <laughs> but the fact that that's still the only narrative that's out there for how to tell a story like yeah I just, yeah i wrote a or my book that just came out of reports from hell about the middle east uh had some guys try to option it for film and had to eventually they had to you know wow. oh, we can't figure out the story because they just couldn't figure out the hero's journey angle where why does everything have to be the hero's journey Hero's journey <laughs> is is just goofy as hell but it's it's easy it's marketable it's it's
1: um you know, it's it's the it's the dumb guys' version of intellectualism. You know, it's it's jo- it's Jordan Peterson. Yeah. But
0: don't you think don't you think that the public, the film watching or reading, I guess public, is they they're tired of it? I mean, it's been since Star Wars. This has been crammed down. That's it. That's the narrative you tell. It's a hero's well, journey.
1: You're you're talking about a culture right now where art is produced by algorithm. I mean, just look at how Netflix writes things. I mean, yeah. it's crazy yeah um but you but and into the book you engage with uh environmentalism and maybe this is a path forward
0: i I mean shoot i wish it was my path forward i really do think i wish wish i'm such a damn cynic i I suppose
1: (laughs) which which is what makes the book so damn readable (laughs) i mean (laughs)
0: It's just so, like, for me to really try to, because I do believe, of course, you know, deeply that we shouldn't be screwing the environment the way, the way we are. And that we could do something to fix this. And surfers, more than anyone, could do something. And uh, funny, I was, at the end of that book, it was when, or as I was finishing writing it, the whole San Onofre power plant thing. Uh, so, in Southern California, there's, there's a power plant uh, right next to you know well, one of the greatest it's a nuclear power plant a it's nuclear a power, power plant, plant. Sorry. it's a nuclear yeah.
1: power plant and on, a, it, on the coast on the beach on, on a fault the sand, line on, in a in a in a very popular surfing area
0: like completely and they they're burying the nuclear waste in the sand and so i had ian cairns who's uh one of uh, you know a famous australian surfer call me up and said come on help us out here so i went to the meetings and i listened and i thought okay this is I could totally, this is something I could drive this and realizing the intractable nature of this kind of, there's no solution, yeah, right? Yeah. There is no solution. I mean, until they make a you know, yucca mountain or whatever, and a train to take it there, that stuff is going to be there. And, th- and so getting not depressed, but thinking, okay, maybe my, what I can, what I can do is not this. Maybe I can just make fun. Maybe well, damn, damn it,
1: Chess Smith, you ended that book on an optimistic note. And like in the hero's journey, you found redemption. Now, now you're telling us, you're showing us behind the curtain that, um, uh, <laughs> that you're, you're not there
0: yet. I'm, I mean, I'm not either that or I really have realized that provocation has value. Uh, and I don't know that I'm there yet either. I don't know that I'm just a broken, rotten soul who <laughs> is is <laughs> just wrecked it, just pissed away a life and is just ugly and damaged uh but i think provoking at least for surfing there's still something to being able to provoke this to be better than it is
1: yeah because so so much i mean I, I i don't read I haven't, even as a kid, I never read the articles in Surfer or Surfing. I looked at the pictures. I mean, the surf journalism is just fluff. It's just a pat on the back. It is just boosterism. Whereas your, your, um, your website, Beach Grit, I, I think it's like comparable. It's like the surfing industry's version of Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, it is. It is. is, They are provocateur. They are, they are the bad boys. They're naughty. Um, I know you got to get going, but um, can you suggest two books to our listeners um, related to these subjects? And what what are, two books um that uh we should read
0: okay uh a surf book i think i mean i think that honestly it sounds dull but i think the history of surfing by matt warshaw Mm -hmm. is one of the most fantastic reads also like the way matt writes the history of surfing it's just endlessly readable uh it's just very fun and he does such a great job of of a thorough job of telling the actual history. So I'd say history of surfing on the surf side and the cocaine side. I, I'm just going to go straight up with uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, there's no <laughs> yeah. like the cocaine histories are fine. There's one called cocaine, which is good. Um, in terms of kind of a thorough take on cocaine, or I suppose uh, what's the, I can't remember the name of it. what's the new one. That's all about the CIA uh, putting it into the, into the gangs of south central
1: oh i don't know but there's been a fair amount of work on that but if you're gonna yeah. go be thompson i mean wh- why not curse Alono? i mean he, oh, he he goes to the north shore that's I mean, true this, but is, this is an earlier avatar of what you're doing i mean and ralph steadman's uh drawings of the pro surfing contest on the north shore in the 70s are like i mean they're these nazi thugs with surfboards goose stepping down the beach i mean it I-
0: I've got to read, I've got to read Chris Alono again, to be honest. Like I love that Hunter went to Hawaii and I remember being so like, oh yeah. Uh, But then I remember not, I mean, my favorite Thompson, if we're going to get into Thompson is the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. Yeah, Yeah. Have you read that one? No. It's, no, that, no, I mean that is the yeah. greatest work he's ever. Okay, it's a short story, well, but re- I think I wasn't as impressed with Lono as I was with Kentucky Derby, and so. Yeah. But re- I got to go re- back
1: to it. We re- 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 read Chris Lono, and, and it's emotionally touching too. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the loss in there. I'm in, um, and uh, yeah, um, have you, have you read um, Peter McGuire's
0: Tie Stick? I haven't yet. Is it, yeah. is it phenomenal?
1: It's quite good. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and Peter is just a force of nature. I'm gonna got him set up for a, for a podcast coming up. Oh, awesome. Um, and then a uh, podcast I did previously, Scott Laterman's book, uh, Empire of Waves. Okay. Which is a uh, history of politics and surfing. Oh, fun. And it is, it is fabulous. And okay. it, does, it talks about a number of things you talk about, focusing more on the political context of Indonesia and, and so forth. Oh, that sounds But So hey, what, are you work- what are you working on now?
0: So I'm writing a, uh, I got another one. Dang it, I can't stop writing books. Um, it's called- It is your job. It is my job. <laughs> it's called blessed are the bank robbers. Uh, and my family is on my mom's side is like sort of legendarily Christian in terms of, yeah, all mega pastors or mega, uh, you know, big kind of known missionaries, um, her brothers. And then my cousin though, cousin Danny went and ran, ran off is approaching the biggest string of bank robberies in U S history. Uh, so it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's in jail now, but he's out soon and he, he's been in jail for it before. So I well, don't that's, know. That's,
1: a, that's another clash song, you know, not, not my daddy was a bank robber. My cousin was a bank robber.
0: Ah, uh, it's so, and just the, the idea of bank robbing and what bank robbing means when, when old cousin Dan was on the lamb, uh, he reached out to me. And so we had like, I was going to go meet him on the lamb before he got recaught. But there's, it's just this idea of faith and, being, a f- and fugitives and bank robbing.
1: Wow. Okay. That sounds great. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll let you go so you can get to work on that. But, um, but thank you so much for, for talking to us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And anytime, please have me on again.
1: This has been a conversation with journalist Chaz Smith about his 2018 book, Cocaine Plus Surfing, A Sorted History of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode in New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.